title of the message, Liberty and Conscience. Liberty and Conscience. This is one of several texts in the Bible that is specifically and directly addressing the issue of the conscience and what we would call Christian liberty. So, let's get started. Verse 1, considering meat offered to idols. Verse 1 says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. This meat offered to idols situation is literal meat. So think of a butcher, think of a meat market, think of a grocery store you're walking through and you see that nice glass display case with lots of steak in it and um, ground beef and sausages and things like that. There is meat there. In the ancient world, in the first century, um, I'm going to be distracted by the spot on my jacket. Um, in the first century, there were uh, not grocery stores like we have today. There are markets and, and shops along those lines, but what there was, in addition to those butcher stalls, was the local temple. Now, why is the temple a place where you can get meat? Well, what do people do in temples? They worship. Part of their worship, whether it is Jewish worship or pagan worship to the gods is offering uh, animal sacrifices. Now, what does that mean? Practically, that's a lot like our American idea of a cookout or a grill or barbecue. You have a fire, you have some meat, you put it over the fire, and then what do you do afterwards? Well, you eat it. Now, in the ancient world, they're bringing animals for their, for their sacrifices And there's quite a bit more meat being brought than what is needed to eat. So there's a surplus. Now, what do you do with the extra? Well, you would sell it. And so these temples, you know, every ministry, nonprofit, church, temple, whatever, they're always short on funds or they could always use more. So what do they do? Well, they they sell the extra. And the locals needing something to eat would go there and buy the extra meat. So... This meat is for sale, and the locals are buying it and eating it. And this question is raised, can we Christians go and buy and eat meat that has been offered in the worship of, let's say, uh, Zeus? Is that okay? That's the question. That's the question that the Corinthians have raised, and they sent this question to Paul and said, what about this situation? Is it okay? Is it not okay? That's what we're talking about. So Paul starts this off by saying, now concerning things offered to idols. Now, his structure here is interesting because he says, now concerning things offered to idols, and then he doesn't talk about things offered to idols. If you notice that, that's not the direction he goes immediately. And then he does it again in verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols. So, we start off acknowledging the topic and then going into this little side topic. We know that we all have knowledge. This knowledge is uh, seemingly a reference to the spiritual gifts, which are somewhat famous in Corinth and 1 Corinthians, uh, the issue of having a word of knowledge or having these um, special uh, revelations from God that were present in the apostolic era. These Corinthian believers are saying, well, you know, I have a, a special word from the Lord. I have a word of knowledge. And so Paul is referencing that. We know that we all have knowledge. But he doesn't praise that. He says, knowledge puffs up. So, okay, you guys have knowledge. You have these special insights But what's that doing for you? It's making you proud. It's making your heads really big and you're really full of yourself. You're more proud of yourself than my baseball team is of our 15 and 1 record. You're really proud of yourself. But rather than praising this knowledge, he says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up, love edifies. ESV and others say builds up. New King James, which I'm preaching from, says love edifies. Edifies just means builds up. As someone I once heard said, edify, stupid. Say nice things to each other, you idiot. (laughs) 
So we have this issue first off of knowledge. This is what we're going to talk about briefly. It's very easy in reform circles to learn a lot, to have a lot of knowledge, to learn a lot of theology and facts and Bible and history and get into what we would call cage stage. You can be in cage stage for any number of things. You can be, the, the term is coined for cage stage Calvinism, but you can be a cage stage Arminian just as well. So don't think you're off the hook if you are not a Calvinist and you're here today. But in this cage stage, you are very passionate about all your newfound beliefs. And everyone who doesn't hold to the same exact belief as you is a heretic. You're no fun to be around. Every conversation turns into a bait debate. Thanksgiving dinner? Well, it used to be about boring topics like politics, the war in Ukraine, COVID propaganda, election fraud, or whatever. But now, it's about whether or not a person can truly be a Christian if you're only a four-point Calvinist. You know, I don't really think they're actually saved because they don't get Limited atonement. And if you don't understand limited atonement, you're not understanding the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, then surely you're not even a Christian, right? So is a almost Calvinist even saved? And your family is sitting there like, oh boy, here we go again. They barely even know what you're talking about. They've only heard about these things from you. Or perhaps the question comes up, I don't know. I don't think they really believe the gospel because they're continuationist. Or why complementarians aren't complementarianing enough. And this list of topics could go on endlessly. I'm sure you can think of a few examples that you're familiar with. What is the common denominator in these issues? Luke, what's the common denominator in these issues? They're annoying. (laughs) You wouldn't want to go on vacation with people like this unless you happen to agree with them on every single possible point. Why? Because when you have a disagreement with them, then suddenly you're blocked out. You're the enemy. You're the bad guy. You're shunned. You're criticized or ridiculed. Or they, they, they stonewall you with tension and awkward vibes why is that because what i've described to you is a little bit of knowledge and a lot of pride these people think they have a lot of knowledge because they learned three theology words but the reality is they have a little tiny bit of knowledge and they have a lot of pride That type of person is no fun to be around. None whatsoever. Not even a little bit. They think they know everything about everything. They are always confident and sometimes right. But they think they're always right. And if you don't agree with them, then they say you're gaslighting them. They don't even have the words, I don't know, in their vocabulary. Everyone who not only disagrees with them directly, but simply lacks their view because they haven't studied it, well, that's someone that's worthy of scorn and disgust. Oh, this foolish person, I pity them, they don't understand. So I will tell you right now, don't be that type of Reformed Christian. It's everywhere. It's the dominant vibe. It's the dominant personality type amongst Reformed people. It's the caricature. Don't be who the charismatics say we are. Instead, what should we do? We should prioritize love, kindness, mercy, Patience, like Jesus. When interacting with certain types of people, notice the key word, certain types of people, he did not treat all people the same. 
But to the lowly, the downcast, he was humble and tender towards them. To the angry? Well, what happened when the crowd was chasing him, trying to kill him before it was time? He left them. He avoided them. He fled them. He disappeared from their midst. He's like, no, I'm not staying here. But we should be killing you right now. Why aren't you staying and letting us kill you? No, that's not what happened. He just left. To the aggressive and manipulative, he verbally jousted with them. Yeah, he sparred with them. He pushed back. He spoke in riddles designed to further blind them and harden their hearts. But this second part, this second half of what I'm talking about with Jesus is not the point right now. What I'm talking about is when you're sitting at a 4th of July barbecue with your Uncle Steve, that is not the time to flex your little bit of knowledge and a lot of pride. It's not the time to rudely tell him off for thinking something that you thought your entire life until yesterday. So what is a better approach? A better approach is love. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now let's look at verse 2. Verse 2, And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know. Um, in the field of, well, seminary, seminary is the grad school that pastors go to to get their graduate degrees before they launch out into being pastors, typically. Um, In seminary, there is a field of study called systematic theology, which is theology, but it's systematized. It's made in in topical, categorical order. And in the old systematic theology books, they used to start in their doctrine of God section with uh, words like incomprehensibility, that God is incomprehensible. That has sort of fallen off of a lot of the more modern systematics, a lot of the more modern systematic textbooks. So like, if you want to know what I'm talking about, if you're ever at my house and you say, Andy, can you show me? I'll, I'll, I can pull down five or ten systematics and lay them out on the kitchen counter and show you how like these ones don't even go there and these older ones do, and that's where they start. And as, if, you, if you've started in the realm of the newer books and you're a young man training to be a pastor and you're like steeping your mind in these new systematics and then when you turn like 30, 35 and you open up one of the old ones from the 1800s and you're like, whoa, incomprehensible? I didn't think God was incomprehensible. I thought, I got this. I comprehended him. That Trinity, I got this. My friends, this issue of knowledge that is referenced here in verses 1 and 2, most importantly is referencing knowledge of God. And we need to have an attitude of humility not in a postmodern sense, not in a sense of we hold up the Bible and we say, yeah, it says that, and I know that the, that's what the meaning of these words, but did God really say? No, that's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is the more you know the word of God and the more you understand um, the doctrines of God, the more you realize there's just a lot of mystery and there's a lot of things that we cannot fully comprehend that God is truly, ultimately incomprehensible. And that there are many things that are, in fact, quite complicated. And when people come to you wanting very simple, very brief, simplistic answers to the deep things of God, and you try to give them a brief answer, but you recognize that you cannot give them a super simple answer, have some humility have some humility in recognizing that God is bigger than we are. He's bigger than you are. And his mind is bigger than yours is. And that your ability to comprehend him is farther short of his true greatness than an ant's ability to comprehend the size and scope of the Empire State Building when it starts walking up the side of the Empire State Building. It has no idea what's happening. 
has no idea what things it is touching. Much more so is our understanding and comprehension of God fallen short. Now this knowledge being referenced in verse 2, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. This is, I believe, a reference to what the Corinthians are calling these, this word of knowledge. Spiritual gift. Let's continue. Verse 3. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. If anyone loves God. If you were writing this, or if you were reading it very slowly for the first time, how would you expect that sentence to finish? If anyone loves God, what? We often think in terms of whether or not you know God. We're talking about knowledge. We're talking about knowledge of God right here. We're talking about that in this section. If anyone loves God, we might say, this is the person who knows God. That would be a logical way of finishing that sentence, but that's not the way Paul finishes this sentence. So I wonder, do you consider not if you know God, but does God know you? If anyone loves God, this one is known by God. That's the ultimate question. Suppose that when the day comes and you stand before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? So this is our EE question for those who are here on Wednesday night. We reference evangelism explosion. So let's say that you are standing before God someday and God says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? What's your answer? There's an answer better than, well, because I know you. It's when God looks at you and he says, oh, Matthew, great to see you. Come on in. That's so much better. Because he knows you. He recognizes you. He welcomes you. So I'm asking you today, would God identify with you? Would he know you? Would Jesus call you out in a crowd? You're walking through a crowd and you see someone you know and you stop them and you say, hey, John Smith, and he stares at you with a blank look. Is it going to be like that? Or when you're walking through the crowd and you make eye contact and they make eye contact and that person says to you and calls you by name, gives you a big hug and says, it's great to see you. Would Jesus call you out in a crowd? Would he identify with you? Would he look at you and say, yeah, that's, that's mine. Those are my people. That's my friend. So here's how you can know if Jesus would identify with you. Here's how you can know if God the Father would identify with you. The way that you know this is if you're one of his people. If you are a child of God, a father knows his children, he knows his sons. A brother knows his, his siblings, his brothers. If you, are, if you are a brother of Jesus, see, Jesus is not God the Father. Jesus is not your father. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your brother. God the Father is your father. Be careful with your prayers. Edit your prayers. Change your theology. Repent. Say, God, I'm sorry for getting my Trinitarianism all screwed up. If you're one of his people, you're a brother of Jesus. You're a child of God. There is an intimate relational love that exists between yourself and God. And God knows you. Not just that you know God. You have thoughts in your mind about God. That's great. We want those to increase and expand. And we're glad that they are. But right now, we need to consider the fact that God has thoughts about you. Have you ever thought of that? Have you ever just paused to consider that God knows you. And so when you pray, when you pray to him, when you come before God, 
That should shape your prayers. He looks at you. He sees you. He observes you and he knows you. He knows what you're going through and he loves you. There is an intimate relational love that exists between God and his children. And it's not just that we love God, it's that he first loved us. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, and this sounds kind of weird, I just want you to know that this is available to you and it's offered to you and it's offered to you today. That you can experience this. You can have the love of God. You can have God know you. You can, you can change from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. That doesn't come by your changing. It doesn't come by your action. It comes by recognizing and receiving the work that God has done on your behalf in order to welcome you into his family. You want to know what that is? What did God do to make that happen, to make that possible? But not only possible, but sure and secure for his people. In other words, all those who would believe on him. What God has done to make that happen, to bring you into the family of God, is he sent his only son, we call him Jesus. He sent him into this world. You've heard of Christmas, the incarnation. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a true human life. He died on the cross as a sinless man, not dying for his own sins, but dying, taking our punishment upon himself, dying in our place as a substitute. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And his rising, his resurrection, which we celebrate at Easter time, is a verification and a vindication that it worked, that the, the credit transfer went through, that the payment was processed. It's the receipt that guarantees this is paid in full and we know it because he rose from the dead. The payment was accepted. And so a person who is a Christian is not a person whose parents had him or her baptized as an infant, but a person who is a Christian is a person who believes that message. They believe, yes, Jesus died for me. He saved me from my sins. He rose on the third day. He invites me and has brought me into his family. I am now a child of God. And Jesus, this one that we just described, yeah, he's, he's now my older brother. And he's done this for me to save me, to cleanse me and to, to wipe my conscience clean from all of the sinful things that I do every day. This is the way that a person can cross from a life of darkness into a life of light. This is the way a person can, can become a child of God. To be known by God. To be loved by God. To have God see you in that crowd and recognize you and know you and identify with you and to call you by name and say, yeah, that one's mine. It's all the work of Christ. It's all what Jesus did. It's that Jesus died for our sins and he rose again on the third day. That's the core of the gospel message. You must believe that message. If you believe that message, you believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you, what we call you is a Christian. Now, let's get back to things Meat offered to idols, verse 4. Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. There is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, or there, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, in whom, of whom are all things, and we for him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. So this issue of meat offered to idols returns to Paul's focus, just as it returns to our message from verse 1, appearing again in verse 4, after his brief rabbit trail into knowledge and being known by God. And he says that idols are nothing. Idols are nothing. We know that an idol is nothing in this world. Now, if you've been around New York City churches for longer than 10 years, 
You've probably heard a lot of talk about idolatry in certain Presbyterian megachurches. And this involves a fundamental redefinition of sin. So in that way of thinking, sin has shifted from being sin is a transgression of the law, which is what the Bible says, to now sin is at its core idolatry. Now, idolatry is sin. But idolatry is super loose. It's very broad in its definition. It's very malleable. And so then that goes, this is kind of deep end of the pool stuff for 20% of y'all. But what that then goes into is obscure, uh, enigmatic tweets about how loving your family is making them an idol and it's sinful to do so. That is not true. When Paul speaks about idols right here, he's not talking about, hey, it's Father's Day and I want to celebrate my dad, so I got him some really great steaks and we're going to grill him and throw a football in the backyard. That's not what he's talking about. When Paul is talking about idols, he's talking about statues, like a wooden carved statue, a golden statue, a stone statue. He's talking literally about actual idols. Now, for those of us who have lived in the United States and grown up in Christian circles, church-type life, you probably haven't been around a lot of these. But if you have either been raised in less Christianized societies, whether that be something from, um, well, just mainly other continents, basically, whether we're speaking in terms of religions, such as Buddhism or Hinduism, um, there's a lot of idols. There's a lot of literal statues, even Roman Catholicism. There's literal statues That's what Paul is talking about. We're talking about statues. Now, these idols are things that the Corinthian people have been offering their meat sacrifices to. So imagine a statue of Zeus or any other ancient god. So the question is, what about that? Back when I was in... Uh, seminary working on my MDiv, there was in the missions building a cabinet um, in the at in the Southern Baptist Convention. They have their own like patron saints basically, and one of their patron saints is is a female missionary, a lady named Lottie Moon, and um, it was like Elizabeth Moon or something. And that I, her her name was probably not. Moon. I think she married a Chinese guy and then her name changed to Moon. But um, Lottie Moon was, is this hero of the Southern Baptists. And so um, they have these artifacts from her life in this cabinet. And I was taking a class uh, called Ev- Evangelism and Spiritual Warfare or something, Spiritual Warfare and Evangelism and Missions. And um, I walked past this cabinet full of like, her journal and a hair clip from, and then these idols that she brought back from overseas that the local people worshipped. And I just walked past, I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And you just carry on your way. Like, don't think anything of it. But several people in my class freaked out. They're like, oh, those shouldn't be in here. Those have demons attached to them. They're cursed objects. We can't have those here. Don't go near that. Don't, don't, no, don't open the door. Like people are like going to open up the glass cabinet and be like, oh, look at this. It's like a wooden carved mask that they would have worn. And I don't even know where she was a missionary to. Um, but this is the question. Are these idols, these literal idols, something we need to worry about? Do we need to fear them? Or is another perspective better? This paragraph is a little perplexing. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there are no gods but one. 
So for the westernized skeptic like me, you walk past and you're like, well, there's nothing. It's just a piece of wood. And if I travel overseas, I can buy some. Souvenirs. Cool. This is interesting. No big deal. It's no, no different than you know, buying the knockoff purses from the salesman on Broadway. There's nothing to this. But he carries on, verse 5, even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, but then there's this parenthetical remark that he writes, as there are many gods and many lords. So you're like, wait a second, Paul, I thought you said they're not anything, but then there are so-called gods, And there are many gods and many lords. So make up your mind. Is it nothing? Is it something? Or are there lots of these somethings? Well, I don't think Paul is even attempting to give us a full, like, 800-page demonology right here. But I'm glad that you're here this morning for my take on this. Verse 6 says, Yet there is one God. This is famous statement from, I think, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is one God. Christians and Jews and, I don't know if Muslims, they're they're monotheists. They believe there is one God. Christians believe in the Trinity. So what is the Trinity? One God, three persons, triune. Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a reference to this right here in verse 6 just referencing God the Father and God the Son, but they are nevertheless referenced very clearly in verse 6 while saying there's one God, there's the Father, and there is the Lord Jesus Christ. But what are these many gods and many lords that he's speaking of? These are real spiritual beings that exist. Notice your Bible probably has that word many gods, gods in lowercase g. Many lords, lowercase l. Even though in verse 6, when it says the Lord Jesus Christ, it capitalizes the L for the Lord because the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to the second person of the Trinity. It's referring to Jesus, God the Son. But the many gods and many lords are referring to demonic beings, demons, devils. They're real. So what do we do? What do we do about this? How do we handle this, this idea? What do we think about it? We know that an idol is nothing. There is no other God but one. Even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven, and here's the scary part, or on earth, where we are, I don't want there to be any on earth. I want them to just stay in the spirit realm and not come into my house, please, and thank you. Certainly not my town, but I think Matthew and James encountered some, some earthly demonic stuff this morning. Where is the line between mental illness and demonic activity? I don't know. But if you Google that, you can find a great paper published on the Westminster Seminary California website about this very subject. I think it was a THM or PhD dissertation. Just Google that, that question. The difference between... Demon possession and mental illness. So there are many demons out there. There are many false gods. There are many real spiritual entities all over the place. But there is only one God. So there are angels and demons and other beings that dwell in the spirit realm and also on the earth, according to our verse 5. For us, we Christians, there is one God. What does this mean? This is not moral relativism or theological relativism. I have my God, you have your God. That's not what Paul is saying. What he's saying is, we Christians, you Corinthian Christians, you New York Christians, worship one God. Being a polytheist is not an option. 
saying, okay, well, I will be a Christian and a Buddhist. I will be a Christian and a Hindu. I'll be a Christian and a Muslim. I'll be a Christian. Like, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to work. You have to leave that behind, leave the demon worship behind, and just worship God. And he's very black and white about this. This is why I'm trying to be careful in the beginning of this section to differentiate that when I say idols, I'm talking about idol idols. I'm not talking about like, oh, you love your family too much and that's idolatry. I'm not talking about that. For we Christians, we worship the triune God of the Bible. But what Paul is teaching here is that those who worship other gods besides the triune God of the Bible are worshiping demons. And these demons are real. They are very real spiritual entities that exist in the heavens, the unseen realm, and on the earth, and are occasionally seen. And then people freak out about it, and then skeptics are like, oh, you're crazy, you didn't actually see it. And then they produce a very blurry video, and then you're like, oh, but I'm still skeptical, or maybe it's fake. How do we know that people who are worshiping false gods are worshiping demons? How do we know that when a person worships an angel, that they are worshiping a bad angel and not a good angel? Because that's the difference between an angel and a demon, is that a demon is a fallen angel or a bad angel, if we're just speaking in very simplistic terms here. How do we know that a person who worships angels or prays to angels is worshiping bad angels and not good angels? Well, I'm glad that you asked that question. I'm glad that it was raised in your mind. And we know this. We know that these are bad angels because good angels do not receive worship. They deflect it. It's in the Bible. Whenever a person bows down in the Bible to worship an angel, they always say, don't worship me, worship God. When people bow down to worship Jesus, Jesus says, yeah, worship me. That is appropriate. Good angels don't take worship. Why? Well, they saw what happened to the angels who rebelled. They recognize and remember, always, they remember that God alone deserves worship, that God alone is preeminent. They are not preeminent. They are not supreme, but God is supreme. And they remember what happens last time. An angel attempted to usurp that supreme position. We've already discussed this Trinitarian reference in verse 6, so we'll keep moving. Verse 7, however, there is... Not in everyone that knowledge. So not everybody knows the stuff we just said. Okay, Paul, no kidding. Great, thanks. For some, with consciousness of the idol until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. So... Let's just take those statues in the cabinet, that, that type of idol. That's, by the way, most of these ancient idols, like we're talking Israelite days, they're actually kind of small. Like the golden calf that the Israelites made, these things are like this big. Like people are bowing down to statues like the size of this water bottle. They're they're small. Like the household gods are even smaller. So for these people that have come out of that, they've stopped. They've stopped that, but they have that in their background. And then they are they remind they're reminded of the meat from the temples. And this affects their conscience when they see that meat. It reminds them of their participation in the worship of these demons. And so, it does as our text says today in verse 7, it defiles them. It destroys them. We're not just talking like it makes them a little bit sad. 
We're talking about a massive amount of spiritual harm that is akin to bringing about their apostasy, destroying their faith, destroy, like they don't believe in God anymore. They're not a Christian anymore, but it's pulling them back into the paganism of demon worship. That type of situation is what's happening. Now, you have, let's say, Jewish Christians in Corinth who, they didn't, they've never been inside that temple. They've never seen that activity take place. And they go to the meat market and they speak Hebrew, not Greek. They're not even reading those labels. They just look at the cut of meat and they see, okay, that's some beef. I'll have three pounds, please. The guy slices off three pounds. They take it home. The wife cooks it up for dinner. They feed the family. No big deal. Don't think anything of it. That meat doesn't have demons in it. It doesn't have, it's not bringing a, a, a curse or a vex upon our house. We, we're not even worried about this. Oh, but don't you know what's written on that label? Well, no, I don't, but I don't really care either. It's just meat. That's the attitude of the one side. The mindset of the one side that's saying, hey, I mean, demons are nothing. These things aren't real. Like the, these idols, like it's just a piece of wood. It's not, the meat is not infected. It's not like harming us. We can eat it. We can eat it to the glory of God. That's what's going to come up again in chapter 10 when this topic re resurfaces. But then on the other hand, there are these former pagans coming in and they're horrified that these other people would participate, that these other people would eat that and and not shun it. So in this scenario, well, verse 8, let's continue. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. So this issue that is existing in the church in Corinth is causing problems among them. And Paul is saying, look, whether you're on the let's eat the meat or on the don't eat the meat side, it's not making you right with God either way. So what's happening in this scenario, people would bring their animal sacrifices, which would be sacrificed to the pagan gods and goddesses, and the worshipers would participate in all manner of sexual perversion and temple prostitution. And then after the various feasts had taken place, the pagan priests would sell the leftover meat in the marketplace. This meat is associated with demon worship in the pagan temples there in Corinth. So what happens when you find out that the lunch meat in your sandwich came from a pig that was sacrificed to Zeus? Can you see how some people would absolutely freak out and how other people would say, uh, I don't really know who Zeus is and I don't really care. I just want to eat a sandwich. You know, like when you're, when you're hanging out with the bros and somebody makes some sort of cultural reference and you don't get it and it just goes straight over your head and then the other people in the group who are new Christians, they're like, how do you not get that? Why are you not offended right now? And you're just like, I don't know what they're talking about. I also don't speak Spanish. So I missed that entire reference. Like yesterday on our baseball field, like Jack and I were talking afterwards, like asking Alexis, like, all right, so out of all those things that were said, we, we won our both, both our games last night, 17 nothing and 11 to 1. So we destroyed the other team. And there was quite a bit of chirping back and forth between the two teams. And, and um, I have no idea what half my team said most of the night. So I don't feel bad about any of it. I felt quite pleased, actually. Um, so what happens when you find out that there's something like that some people think is very bad about the thing that you're doing? So the bottom line is, what, what about that? Well, the bottom line is that it depends. Depends on the situation. Depends on the situation and depends on who's there and what their situation is. How is this going to affect them? This is where liberty and conscience issues come into clear focus. All the stuff that we talked about so far in the last 45 minutes, this is where it comes. 
into the rubber meets the road. Verse 9, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours, you have freedom. You can eat the meat or not eat the meat. Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. When he says stumbling block, again, this language of stumbling block is a biblical term that has appeared throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It's not just referring to you're walking down the sidewalk The pavement's uneven, you trip, you hit your foot, your phone comes flying out of your hands, you try to catch it, and you hit somebody's dog, and you fall to the ground, and you scrape up your hand. It's not talking about that. Instead, when you think of stumbling block, you should should think about you're on the the top of the Empire State Building, you're in the, the observation deck, and you ignore all the signs, and you stand up on the the edge of the ledge, And the wind blows, and you stumble, and you fall, and you die. Like 1,200 feet, whatever it is, 1,500 feet straight down, that you stumbled and fell. That's the concept of stumbling in the Bible. That that term. It's referring to apostasy. It's the type of stumbling that when you stumble in that way, you depart from this entire religion, you renounce Christ, you die, you go to hell. That's what stumbling is. That's what being a stumbling block is. Now, my background in the world that called itself fundamentalism, we relabeled, don't be a stumbling block to like anything and everything that like may or may not have any legitimacy whatsoever. I don't want to be a stumbling block to this person or that person. So you live your entire life dominated by fear of man. Dominated by fear of offending the most easily offended person that you know. That is not what this is talking about. Now, I say that, but I also want to, to, to temper it or to hold it back because what is he talking about? He's talking about something so minor as a piece of meat. Something that you eat. So it can be something very minor, but it's something very minor that is actually very significant both at the same time. And so this is a very complex issue and requires a lot more thinking than most of us are interested in doing. Instead, we want to go to our big conference or listen to our guru tell us, well, just give me the rules, tell me what I can do and what I can't do, and then I will follow those. Those are the rules of my life, and I will teach them to my children and my grandchildren, and then you end up like that story about the woman who gets the, the ham, and she cuts off both ends of it, and then bakes it, and then this happens every year, and they're like, Mom, why do you cut the end off the ham? I don't know. My mom told me to do it. And then you call up, Mom, why do you cut the end off the ham? She, I don't know. My mom told me to do it. So you go to Grandma, and she says, why do you do this? And you get back to great-grandma, and it turns out that great-grandma did this because the pan didn't fit, so she had to shorten to make the ham smaller in order to fit it in the oven. And that's our, our, we're much more comfortable checking our brain at the door and just going with what we've been told instead of constantly thinking about the state of reality. So in other words, no, tattoos are not stumbling blocks. Unless, of course, it actually is. But in our world today, they're not. And you're not being honest if you say that you are, that they are. Could they be theoretically in some alternate universe? Well, of course. Just the same way that eating a Eating bacon could cause some people problems in other parts of the world that are completely different than where we are right now. Um, Verse 10, For if anyone sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish. Note, when I said stumbling refers to like falling off the Empire State Building and dying. That's, this is part of the argument for that. The weak brother is perishing because of this stumbling. It's the type of stumbling that leads to death, and he's talking about eternal death. He's talking about departure from Christ. Shall your knowledge, because your knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died. 
But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So to stumble means to leave the Christian faith. Which means if the ham sandwich is going to lead them into some apostate level condition, then you don't participate in that. You have genuine freedom to eat or not eat. You have true Christian liberty. And what that means is you can actually do it. And if you do it, other people shouldn't look down at you for having the ham sandwich. But you should also be alert as well. Be alert to the consciences of others and consider their background. So, here's an illustration. Some of us were in an escape room a month or two ago. And you know escape Raise your hand if you know what escape room is. All right, good. Everybody. So, in this escape room, there is, um, for those who don't know, you're locked in this room and it's like a big puzzle. And you have to solve all these mysteries and riddles in order to get out. And you have a set amount of time, like 60 minutes, to get out before the timer runs out. And if you don't, you lose. So you're, it's like a living inside of a board game, basically. So in this escape room, it's on a, a particular theme from a certain era in history. And um, in this escape room, there is a fake uh, Ouija board. And it's just right there. Like, it's part of the furniture. Like, it's screwed onto the furniture, and it's part of the game, part of the puzzle, part of the mystery. Like, for... We who grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist church, I have never seen one of these things. I've never touched one of these things. I've never been around. Like, okay, I've heard of it. I Googled it. I'm like, okay, that's what it is. Interesting. All right. But now imagine that there is someone who is a professing Christian who used to have a lifestyle of occultic and demonic worship. Because we've already covered that the, these other gods, like that, that's actually demonic. And they formerly had a semi-working relationship with demons. The ability to summon them, to interact with them, like a witch of sorts. But when they became a Christian, they left all that behind. They got rid of all their stuff. They placed their trust in Christ, become a Christian. And here they are, seeing in this escape room with an Ouija board that is part of the setup. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if the A is supposed to be an I, like Ouija or Ouija or I don't know. Um, so it's part of the setup. And then seeing that fills their mind with these memories of past experiences and they remember. And as they remember, they begin to positively recall their old interactions with the demons and how it made them feel special. That there's beings out there that they can interact with. And then they have this special knowledge, this Gnostic knowledge, this insight into things because they would receive these messages and those messages would turn true and there were things that were very clearly from the unseen realm, things that were not possible to be known by the human mind. And so they recall these things, they bring these memories back and this secret knowledge of hidden events made them feel powerful. And so their curiosity is piqued and they return to their parents' home and they find their old occultic objects, their old books, their old items, And before they know it, they have returned to their witchcraft. But not just returned to their witchcraft, but actually dug in deeper than they ever were before. And now they've said, actually, I'm not going to go back to that church that I used to, that I'm a member of currently. I'm going to block and unfriend all those people on social media. I'm going to block their phone numbers and cut them off entirely. And I'm going to go back to my circle of friends in those associations. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell all my old witchcraft friends, hey, I'm back. I hate God. I hate Jesus. That was stupid. That was just a little phase. I was just curious. But now I'm back with you guys. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about something exponentially more serious. 
That's not the same thing as going to your fundamentalist Aunt Vicky's house while wearing normal clothes that you bought at the mall, and she was deeply offended because it wasn't Amish enough. It's quite a bit more serious than that and actually has the potential to result in apostasy and the return to the old false gods of demon worship. That's what we're talking about. Now, for me, walking into that escape room, I see these objects and I think nothing of it, and I start fidgeting with the, the pieces, and I'm like, oh, there's magnets in these. And that's what's causing them to move or not move or to, like, you set the thing and it, like, goes in a certain place because there's a magnet in it. Now, apparently, really Ouija boards are not like that, but this one is. And for me, I thought nothing of it. Now, our text, what I've just described is simple enough and nice enough and easy enough to understand, but our text presents a problem for those of us who would want to live normal Christian lives and not be living under the tyranny of the weaker brother. Listen to the R.C. Sproul sermon on that, the tyranny of the weaker brother, and that's a very helpful sermon. Because I would like to just say, you know what? I would rather not ever deal with the weaker brother types ever again, even though I'm often the weaker brother. I do believe that it can be appropriate to limit your interactions with certain people, just as our text calls us to limit our actions around certain people. I think that it is fine that when our Lord Jesus was on this earth, he had 120 followers that were closer than the multitudes. And then of those 120, 70 were closer than the other 50. And of those 70, there were 12 that were closer than the other, what, 58. And then of those 12, there were three that were closer than the other nine. Thank you. Jesus wasn't equally close with, everything, with everyone. And because it was Jesus, we should acknowledge that that was not a sinful thing. There were certain people that he was more transparent with, and there were certain people that he did not reveal himself to. There were certain people that he would just speak very openly with, and other people he would intentionally speak in parables designed to conceal the truth from one group of people and then reveal the truth to another group of people, even with the same words at the same time. And that's, that's quite all right that he would do that. So my point is that if we think that we have to interact with all people the same exact way, we are being naive, foolish, and we're lying to ourselves, and we clearly weren't here the day that John Benzinger preached on this topic. But that's not all, but while we are on this, let me press further. Not everyone needs to be besties with everyone. It is physically impossible and relationally impossible. It's physically impossible, and by that I mean you just don't physically know everybody. And you, you, I mean, I, I, I can't be best friends with somebody who lives in the other side of the world and I have never met them. You're only able to maintain so many regular relationships, and that number is less than 100. So if verse 13 is troublesome to you, what does it say? Let's see. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat again unless I make my brother stumble. If that's troubling to you, think of it like this. You don't have to be best friends with the ex-demon-worshipping vegan. Because that's the implication here. The implication is you've got this ex-demon-worshipping vegan and you can't eat meat around them. And that's annoying. It's difficult. It makes life very unpleasant. Like, you know how nasty soy products are? Somebody's like, oh, let's go to a restaurant. There's a cool vegan place. I'm like, I don't think I need to be your friend. <laughs> oh, it's tofu. It's tofu. I'm like, you know how bad that is for you? Amen. Do they have like chicken or beef or something? <laughs> or just leave the tofu out. I'll just have rabbit food right now. So anyway, 
It can be very difficult trying to be a friend of an ex-demon worshiping vegan. Now, perhaps you were once a demon worshiper and you also happen to have a very unusual diet that is quite strict and some would call vegan. Perhaps God has called you to a unique ministry where all your closest friends can be the people that you can eat these things together with or not eat them together with. And, And those are your closest people. And that's fine. You don't have to have every single person in the church over to your house. I would advise against it. It's not wise. For a church that's larger than about eight people, it's not. It's, it's not realistic as well. Now, before you go far into that of saying, oh, so Andy is endorsing clicks. Amazing. Before you get into that train of thought, look back at verse 12, which we had not really gone sequentially through, but that's fine. Verse 12 says, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Remember that Jesus associates with his people and he associates with his people so closely that he considers sinning against them to be sinning against him. We see this throughout the Bible. You see it in the book of Acts. You see it when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the church in uh, Acts 4. And uh, Peter calls them out and says, you've lied to, not man, but you've lied to God. When you lie to the church, you're lying to God. So Jesus takes these things personally. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So by, having, by implication, what this also means is that by having fellowship with his people, having fellowship with those who are truly Christian also means having fellowship with Jesus. If sinning against a Christian means sinning against Jesus, having fellowship with a Christian means having fellowship with Jesus, even if they're an ex-demon-worshipping vegan. So think with me. Consider this for a moment. Think of that pause, leave our metaphor behind, move forward into a new thought that is connected. Think of that awkward Christian, the one with the odd personality. And if no one comes to mind, maybe it's you. But remember this before you say, I'm just not going to hang out with those people. Remember that Jesus is near to those people. And so for those who are able To also be near to those people means being near to Jesus. To take it a step or two or three further, I once worked at a church that had multiple adults in the church who had severe um, developmental disabilities. Um, We're talking like Down syndrome and and other things, but, but very severe. Um, you know, 40-year-olds operating at the level of uh, a very young child. And when you're at church and you start thinking, oh boy, I have to talk to this person again. You have the same conversation with them week after week after week. Hey, how was your week? It was good. What'd you do? Oh, well, I sharpened all the pencils in the church. You're like, oh, that's great. You know, like the pencils in the back of the pew. Like there's this one guy who was employed by the church to be a janitor, but one of the things that he would do was he'd sharpen all the pencils every week. Now, let's say that you talked about that every week and you're like, oh, I bet I know what he's going to tell me he did this week. And you just start thinking all these negative, cynical thoughts and you're just like, this is not that interesting. I'd much rather be talking to that guy over there who's in the same industry as me, but a couple levels up and maybe he would help me out with my job. And you think in those kind of ways, instead of thinking about this dear child of God who loves Jesus, but doesn't really have much to offer you in terms of anything. Please remember that to be near to those people means to be near to Jesus, and to shun those people could perhaps mean to shun Christ. It certainly means to shun part of the body of Christ. So this raises the question, what would you gladly give up for Jesus himself? If Jesus himself were here, and he says, what's that smell? Oh, I think I I think I'm having an allergic reaction to that. Are there are there are there P 
peanuts in that? I, I can't be in the same space because I have such a severe allergy to that, that dish. I'm sorry, I need to step out. And you're like, well, I'm going to eat it anyway. You wouldn't do that if it was Jesus. So why would you do that to another brother or sister in Christ? What would you gladly, happily give up for Jesus himself? We would all give up our seat for him. We would all give up our jacket and say, oh, you're cold here, let me help you. But for that awkward Christian who doesn't know how to dress or their their way of coordinating their outfit looks funny or the shoes never match the pants or whatever, we're much more inclined to, to push them away. But if you would gladly give up things for Jesus himself because he, after all, gave up his very life for you and for me to redeem us from bondage, to draw us near, to call us into the family of God, to make us his brothers and sisters, and to even call us his friends, even though we are the epitome of Jesus' weaker brother, when compared to Jesus, our older brother, perhaps this should shape the way we think about issues of liberty and conscience. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would teach us that we would be considerate of one another, that we would think about the things in our lives that may have harmful effects on others. I pray also that you would make us strong, that we would not wield our weaknesses or wield our backgrounds or our pasts as weapons to harm other people. I pray that you would make us wise, that we would dig deep into your word, into the knowledge of God, but not allowing that knowledge to puff us up, that we would interact with one another with love, and so we would build up ourselves and each other. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.